Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Scott Westerfeld. Scott is a New York Times best-selling author. He's got several successful YA series, including Uglies, Leviathan, and Zeros. He's won an Aurelius Award, and uh, Scott's got a new series out. It's called Imposters. Today, he will be joining me to discuss his latest, the second novel in the Imposters series, Shatter City. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ongoing connection to the land, stolen land that was never ceded. Now, Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture. It's featured on 2SER in Sydney every week. Now, the Great Conversations podcast, we're taking those, those conversations to the world, and you get to hear more from your favourite authors. Now, after the events of Imposters, Frey is left impersonating her sister Raffia in the Citadel of Shreve. Her plan is to bide her time until she can assassinate her father, end his regime, and free the citizens. Plans go awry, though, as her fake fiancé, but actual boyfriend, has arranged an escape, and they find themselves on the run. Now, in the free city of Path, for the first time in her life, Frey doesn't have to control every aspect of her being. She's also got deadly information about her father's plans. Plans that no one seems to want to believe until it's too late. Join me as we discover Scott Westerfeld's Shatter City. This is Final Draft and I am Andrew Popel. I'm joined in the studio by Scott Westerfeld. He is a New York Times best-selling author of many successful YA series, including Uglies, Leviathan, and uh, along with two co-authors, we did hear this interview many years back, if you remember, but Zeros. Scott's won an Aurelius Award. He's got a new series out. It's called Imposters, of which book two, Shatter City, is what we're going to be talking about today. Scott, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. It's so great to have you here. Now, Shatter City, it's the second book of this second series set within a world that you first introduced, Uglies, back in about 2005. Now, for those who haven't been playing along at home, what are the cliff notes on the world of Uglies and Imposters? So, Uglies is set in a world um, about 300 years in the future in which everyone gets compulsory plastic surgery when they turn 16. Mm. Uh, That's why it's called Uglies, is because basically everyone between the ages of 11 and 16 is referred to as an ugly. And uh, the people who are older than that are called pretties. And you sort of have new pretties and middle pretties, sort of middle-aged people. And then you turn into a crumbly eventually. But uh, there's a whole, basically, how you are identified in this world is how you look. Like, that's what matters to this society. Um, Unlike ours, of course. It must have been so hard for people to relate to that. Yeah, completely. (laughs) It's not like we would ever invent entire social media streams about how awesome we look. Mm. And so Uglies was a series, uh, a trilogy that lasted four books. I think I read in my research that it was originally conceived and then people must have loved it that much. (laughs) Well, yes, you know, it was very popular. It's been in 31 languages. Uh, It's been translated into 31 languages, appeared in about 40 countries. Um, It's... uh, and yeah, and I wound up writing a fourth book, which is really a companion novel. It's different characters. It's a different city. So it's it's not part of the trilogy per se. Mm. And now we're still in that world, but we're in a very specific storyline about two twin sisters in the city of Shreve. And that's where, that's where Imposters takes us. And Shattered City, we're in a very different space, though. Right. Um, so Imposters takes place about 20 years after the original Uglies series. 
the original Ugly series, uh, spoiler alert, that society falls. Um, you know, revolutionaries sort of upend that system, which turns out to have been very sort of corrupt and, um, and doing more than just changing the way people looked. It actually was changing the way people thought. Mm. And so the, um, the revolutionaries have won, but that has freed the world to go off into all kinds of different and random directions. Mm -hmm. So these cities that used to all sort of be centrally controlled, where everyone sort of looked pretty much the same and thought pretty much the same, are now going off in wilder, you know, wild directions. Mm -hmm. So um, as, as there's a sort of watchword in the first uh, in the first series, which is freedom has a way of destroying things. Mm -hmm. And that's what's going on right now. Um, in, in Imposters, we meet Rafi and Frey. They're two identical twin sisters. And their father is uh, the oligarch of their city. And he's, a, he's an evil oligarch with a lot of enemies. And one thing that he has feared more than anything is that someone would use his children against him. Mm. So when he had children, he made sure that they were twins and identical twins. And so he's used one of the daughters, the, the 17 minutes older daughter, Rafi, is his heir. And she's out in public and she's taught to be charming and she is, you know, she is beautiful and, and, and wondrous, whereas her, uh, her younger sister is a completely secret child. Mm. No one has ever seen her. No one knows she exists. She, 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 has been, she was created, basically, to serve as a body double. Mm. She, um, she has been taught to walk like her sister, talk like her sister, and she goes out and does the speeches, the public appearances. So if she gets kidnapped, it won't be the real Rafi. If she gets shot, it won't be the real Rafi. So she's there to take a bullet for her older sister. Now, something I'm sure every slightly older geek like myself starts to wonder is this whole sort of hero-villain divide in both uglies and imposters as well as in other books like zeros of, of yours that i've read you have young protagonists awakening to their social responsibility and across media it feels to me like the young hero's journey is more kind of organic than the older which is often motivated by like cataclysmic events that may spur say a revenge type narrative i mean right. it's 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 just as likely if you're an older character that your cataclysmic event will turn you into a villain is there something about young, the young hero's story arc that makes them more altruistic? Um, well, one thing I like about writing young characters is that even if they do start out bad, you have hope for them. I mean, you don't really feel like when you when you meet a, a you know a terrible person in their forties or fifties that they're that they really have a lot of hope of changing completely. Maybe that's unfair, but it is less likely. Whereas young people's are, are much more, um, their brains are much more likely to evolve and to change and to adapt mm -hmm. to circumstances. They're better at learning languages. They're better at learning, you know, at adapting to new situations than us old people are. So I think whenever you throw a young hero into, uh, you know, a cataclysm of some kind, they are more likely to be they're more likely to adapt to it, but they're also more likely to be idealistic about it. As we've seen when it comes to climate change, the adults are sort of compromised. They're sort of, we've, we've all sort of decided this is the system and there's not much we can do about it. Whereas kids are like, no, 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 the system is, is arbitrary. We can mess it up. We can change it. Mm. And I think that's why kids like reading science fiction is because when you're a teenager, you're just getting to the point where you're understanding the world and where you're starting to question it and say, do things really have to be this way? They're like, really? Like, how did you guys all come up with this plan? It does sound incredibly bleak for our world, though. And there's, so we can all stop looking to see if Donald Trump has an Uncle Ben. We're not turning him into any sort of, uh, sort of hero here. Um, 
so let's come to Shatter City. In Shatter City, Frey is impersonating her sister Raffi in the Citadel of Shreve. Her plan is she's going to bide her time until she can assassinate her father and free the citizens. Great plan. But plans go awry and her fake fiancé but actual boyfriend who was captured when Frey's dad destroyed his city. I kept up. <laughs> right. They've arranged an escape and she's on the run. Finding herself in the free city of Path for the first time in her life, right? she doesn't have control over every aspect of her being. She's also got this deadly information about her father's plans, plans that no one seems to want to believe until it's too late. I, I think I've set that up without spoiling too much. And this is an amazing launching off point for what happens. So within your books, you, you delve into these aspects of self, free will and agency. What opportunities did having identical but profoundly divergent protagonists in Frey and Raffi. What did they offer to you in confronting these ideas? Right. Well, Frey is a, is a really fun character to write from her point of view because she's never been allowed to be herself. Mm. She has always had, you know, she's been told how to walk. She's been told what to wear every day because she has to wear identical clothes to her sister. Mm. She's been, she's trained in how to talk. She's actually learned how to smile from her sister. She's never been allowed to like develop her own smile or her own laugh. Mm. So, and, I, and I'm sure that like lots of people can kind of relate to this, where we all feel like there's something inside us that we're not entirely expressing because of the dictates of society and because of what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do. Mm. And so, what what what's happened to Frey in this book is that she's finally no longer having to pretend to be her sister. Once she escapes. Um, Shreve, you know, when she escapes her father, when she escapes the the, the, the family situation, <clears throat> she she has to find out who she is. She has mm -hmm. to learn how to smile. She has to learn how to, um, you know, she has she has to find out who her friends are because before she's always had to pretend to be her sister's friends in those little moments when they met each other. Mm. So, and I, you know, I that's a really exciting kind of world to be in. It's like when you go to college. And you've been a teenager, and maybe you've been sort of like constrained by your your, your you know the the smallness of your of your high school, mm. and then you get to university, and you can say well, maybe I could just reinvent myself. So she's sort of on the verge of that, of you know, of finding herself for the first time, and it's just a really exaggerated version of what most kids go through. So in the twinning, we sort of have this this realized version of that. That self that we're always told to strive for, the person with the better job, the person who remembers to work out, the person, uh, the, ideal, the ideal us that we, um, we make ourselves unhappy about every day because we're not reaching that person. Well, I mean, there's this weird thing that, you know, consumerism does where we tell people that they can be anything they want and to find themselves. But at the same time, if they go too far outside of any of these very strict boundaries, we wind up... Um, you know, we, we push back, mm. and everybody has felt that uh, that contradiction. That consumerism says, "Be what you want to be, do what you want, have this, you know, have this wonderful shampoo. It will unleash the real you, and everyone will love you then because you'll be beautiful." But of course, it never works, and it's and that and that goal is always moved another couple of meters away when you thought you've or, you know when you thought you've gotten there. Mm. So I noticed in in Shadow City, you problematize the ways in which any individual can truly engage with their society and also, I guess, hence meaningfully rebel. And this starts with the flow of information. In Shreve, it's it's totally controlled. They have, as I understood, the dust. It's, it's kind of the air that you breathe is monitoring you. Um, 
Whilst in other regions such as Perth, they, they have privacy. Um, it's allowed. They're not constantly monitored. Citizens engage through news and propaganda. But it, it does start to become hard to tell one from the other. You stop short of ter- using the term fake news anywhere in the book. But I'm curious, happens, yes. yeah, I'm curious how you wanted to engage with this broader discussion around media, freedom of speech, but also freedom of information, which are not necessarily the same thing. Right. Um, t- to back up, Shreve does have something called surveillance dust. And basically, in a dark room, when you shine a light, we, you, know, you see a lot of dust in the air. In Shreve, about half those little particles are actually nanomachines. They are cameras and microphones and batteries and repeaters and little repair bots. And mm. so, they're, so, so the government of Shreve, if they, if they want to know what happened in you know, any place in the city, they can reconstruct it from any angle, hearing everything, watching it from whatever angle they want to watch. Um, so that means that every word you say, every expression you make, uh, you know, every, everything you write down is always being recorded. By, by the government and recorded for posterity as well. So there's this, so you're constantly aware of yourself as a performance. Mm-hmm. You are performing for the government, you're performing for history, you are, um, there, there's nothing that's yours, that's, you know, there's no information that's just yours. And of course, Frey has already experienced this because she's doing everything as her sister. But all the citizens of Shreve are kind of caught in the same situation where they're, where none of the, where they're all having to be imposters. Mm. Um, so when Frey gets to Poth, which is a, a free city, she finds herself in a world where privacy is very strictly controlled, where you can, um, you can just declare to the city AI at any moment, I want privacy, and then there will be no... You know, no recording of what's happening mm. of any kind. So, so it, this is like an entirely different world for her, and it's a and it's like it, this this it's a mind-boggling thing to happen to suddenly be able to be in a world where she gets to be herself and to to do things and to do bad things and to not have it counted against her. Mm. So it's that sudden realization, which I think is also relevant to teenagers, that you have some kind of power that you're not like, like when you're a little kid. There's only so much bad stuff you can do. Because if you're five years old, you don't have the physical agency. You don't have the control. There's always someone watching you. But when you're 15, suddenly you can start to actually break the rules. And that's a heady and powerful. And, and, you know, and that's where you start to define yourself and figure out who you are morally and ethically and intellectually. It's like, what do, you, what do I read? What do I what do? I do if, if no one's telling me what to read, if no one's telling me what to do? Yeah, so we have this, it's the panopticon writ high tech. Right. And, and in that space, in Shreve, people are, are not able to meaningfully act and rebel because they will be discovered, it will be uncovered. But even as we move outside of Shreve, we have just a barrage of information, which again is, you know, something that I think we understand, but perhaps maybe I I think you've taken it to a further level in Shatter City where um, Trin is a good example, where um, she is not only maintaining what she would maybe call news feeds, she's also maintaining other feeds that allow people to click through to her news because she knows how people engage in certain ways with media through other types of media. And, and right. This right. Famously, she has a really good cooking channel. Her, her cooking show that the rebels love. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that everyone loves, but its, but its entire existence is so 
that people will click through the recipes, but then go through to the propaganda, which is against Frey's father. Yeah, and so we had this situation where not only is media managed, but there's so much media that forget about having your whole head around it. You're, you're in this situation where at some point you have to curate. And even in the act of curation, I guess you're engaging in your own form of, of uh, single-mindedness, if not your own form of propaganda, you're deciding. And, and this, is a, this is an issue that we face every day sure. uh, with, with news. Um, in Australia, um, in the States, you've got news networks that want to engage seemingly less with, with facts and more with spin. Sure. Um, and yeah, I was just, I was interested in the way you played that out. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, it's one of the, and it's funny because there's always this argument that happens sometimes where somebody will say online, ugh, this book looks terrible, I'm not going to read it. And someone else will say, Oh, but how can you say it's terrible? You haven't read it. Mm. And of course, the the absurd part of that argument is that we all decide every day not to read a billion books. Mm. Like that is that's your that's your default daily activity is not reading one of hundreds of millions of books that you could be reading. And you know, e- even beyond the you know, idea of all the Twitter feeds you're not following and all the fake news you're not traveling down and all the mm. propaganda you're not consuming, there's just all this stuff that you're not there's all this information that you're not mm. seeking out. And um, and that is like in a, in a funny way. That's probably the most uh, that that's how we all create our identities mm. is by what we don't look at and what we choose not to engage with. And um, there's something kind of uh, and that doesn't and that's not a that's not a thousand channel million Twitter feed social media construction. Mm. That's something human beings have always done. Yeah. Is decided I'm not going to talk to that guy that today because every time I do he says the same stuff. <laughs> You know, we all. Uh, so that's always been, you know, interesting mm. to me as a as a way of, uh, of of defining yourself. And I think, again, I write for teenagers, and teenagers are just getting to the part where they're saying, "What music do I listen to?" You know, mm. and that's a that was uh, obviously that's a huge part of how you define yourself. And you know, all music has messages. It there, there was just a, an interesting article today um, that the most common. Music that one of the best predictors for a location where people used to vote for Obama and they switched to voting for Trump in 2016 mm-hmm. was heavy metal music. Right. Okay. And that's just a fascinating metric. And obviously, we have all that data now because there's consumer data and there's political data, and someone managed to push that together and say, what is it about people who listen to heavy metal music that made them switch from Obama to Trump, like to people who you consider to be the opposite? And and that kind of that kind of cultural information is really interesting to me, and um, and you know so I'm, I'm trying to create a world where that stuff is relevant. Mm. Like if you if you build a world where there's no media, where there's no sports, where there's no religion, where there's no where people aren't figuring out who they are based on the culture that they consume, then your world will ring false. So now we come to the second part of that equation because we have all this media, and of course once you've curated it, you also you then respond to it. And while Freya, so Freya escapes, she makes it to Path. While she's there, she's mistakenly or otherwise implanted with feels. They're these implants that allow the user with the push of an emoticon to up their levels of whatever emotion they choose. So feels throughout uh, Shadow City, they're variously portrayed as useful or possibly dangerous. And the broader question being whether emotions should be controlled and in, in what manner. 
It's a hard question that I thought you posed for the reader, and I I found myself kind of vacillating between the ways, for example, that we're raised as men to be stoic, to repress our emotions. And and this is obviously something that we can see to be quite harmful, um, especially in extreme circumstances. But then also the very real and important role that, say, medication plays in the lives of people with mental illness. Um, What do you feel about how, how are you feeling about this way that we respond and this way that we might want to engage and change the ways we respond naturally? Right. Well, I was a um, as a philosophy major in university, and I remember there being a long discussion in one of my classes about the fact that our emotions are kind of just chemicals. And if you wanted, you could, you know, with with sufficient technology, you could just hook up the right chemicals and just be happy all the time. Mm. And would that be happiness? And that was always a really interesting conversation to me. And and obviously, one of the arguments you could make is that if there's no social context for your happiness, then it's not real happiness. Mm. If you're just pumping the happiness into your system, but you're sitting on a pile of skulls of your friends and neighbors, you're probably not really happy. And it probably doesn't mean the same as the happiness you feel naturally when you are, you know, are playing, you know, doing a cookout with your neighbors and mm. having a great time with their kids. So, um, so I wanted just to pose that question as a citywide project. The people in in Poth have these things called feels that are implanted in them, and they can select any emotion they want. And most of them use it um, wisely in the same way. Like you know, like when you need a good cry, sometimes you'll mm-hmm. listen to a sad song. You'll atten- intentionally mage- make yourself sad. You'll watch a sad movie because you feel like you need to cry. Like you mm-hmm. need to have that emotion. And that's a totally positive use of of some kind of self manipulation and artistic manip- manipulation. We go to see movies that make us cry for a reason. Mm. Um, of course, the uh, the people in Poth have grown up with this system, whereas Frey has it thrust upon her. Yeah, and she is somebody who doesn't really have her own identity yet because she has grown up trying to be someone else. So. For her, this this power, this technological power to change her emotion just becomes chaos. Mm. And she winds up using it too much and overusing it and sort of like losing control of her um, you know, of of her journey, of her emotional journey and her ability to to um, you know, to to have her own emotions. Yeah, I'm interested in what you're saying there, because you're really talking about what we know as emotional intelligence, not just the ability to have a a feeling, but to to put some of that uh, feeling in context. Right, to know what it means and to know how you got there. Mm, And so um, any any enhancement in the imposter's world is called a surge. So the the feels are a type of surge. And it was really interesting. Just short for surgery, but yeah. Surgery, yeah. Okay, brilliant. Now I feel weird. (laughs) Why is it a surge? That's like a really cool. Um, so uh, Frey sort of has this thrust upon her, but I was interested in the way that it could then be manipulated. She meets. I'm going to. I'm going to drop this out of context because I don't want to sure. spoil anything. She meets a, a thief, um, a crim right. named Primero, and he has his uh, feels surge altered to help him in his work. So obviously there is there are degrees of the way um, the way the feels can be applied. And, and I found that fascinating. I, and I wasn't sure whether Primera had a especially heightened metacognition of his own emotional intelligence or whether he was just, you know, really quite um, out for his own interests. <laughs> well, I'm, and I, I assume that, that one of the things that he had, uh, I mean, he's mostly a con man. That's mm. his primary activity. So one of the things that he has to be is super cool all the mm. time. Like he can't get flustered. He when things 
go off track, he can't lose his cool. So like 90% of his feels are just the, the, the kind of various forms of chilling out mm-hmm. and making sure you don't lose your, um, your focus and your concentration. Um, but at the same time, if you, he as a character is kind of ethically dubious beyond being a crim, and you start to realize that maybe that, um, that focus in the way he's controlled his emotions and the way he's, he's changed himself surgically is that he, is, uh, he has a little bit less empathy for other people. Hmm. He is so cool and so calm and so good at lying that he doesn't see the truth anymore himself. I was interested, though, because of the way he operates. I mean, I, I feel like we could probably have a half-hour discussion just about the very small role he plays in the book. But writ large, you you have this larger context of Frey who sort of believes in an, in an absolute goodness and, with the exception of the killing, is is really <laughs> very much a big exception to make. But she's really much that sort of that moral purist, whereas you see very much more in Raffi. She's a uh, ends justify the means type of person in the way that they sort of bounce off each other. And I, I found that was an interesting discussion in Primero where we, we see him in many different lights as his character evolves over a, a very short span. You've done a really wonderful job with just that very small character. And I, I sort of questioned, well, was he, he made a deal, but his deal was ultimately trying to do something perhaps good. Um, yeah, he's playing a very long game. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, of course, his, his long game is, his, even his long game is suspect though, because the reason why he doesn't want Poth to be conquered by the uh, by Frey and Rafi's father is because of course once you have a total surveillance state a mm. totalitarian perfect surveillance state there will be no more criminals yeah <laughs> so he's he's just like saying look we we can't we can't let this happen it's it's sort of like the uh, it's sort of like the when the the French resistance part of the French resistance was organized crime because they didn't want the Nazis taking over because <laughs> then there would be less organized crime <laughs> um, so so like he he's a he's an interesting one of the things that happens with Frey throughout is that she gains lots of allies. Mm. She's allied to the rebels. She's allied to her sister. She's allied to the the Palafoxes, which are her, you know, the people who are fighting alongside her aristocratic boyfriend. And all these people want a different world, but they're all against Frey's father. Mm. So one of the things that one of the ways in which she is constructing herself, starting with as little as she does of an identity, is by who she makes friends with, mm. and. And of course, when you're fighting a war, you make friends with a lot of people you wouldn't make friends with necessarily otherwise. So the fact that a criminal is one of her allies is is, is really interesting to me. And mm. You are listening to Scott Westerfeld. We are discussing Shatter City. It's book two in The Imposters. This is Final Draft on 2SCR 107.3. And we have really focused uh, very much on the way you the way you discuss issues in the book, Scott, with a with a very light hand, it never never becomes didactic. You present these really fascinating situations where Frey has to confront certain parts of herself and the world she lives in. We've moved a little away from the plot, which is probably to the best because this is the book we don't want to spoil. But one thing I want to come to are the Rusties. Uh, these are the, sort of the old humans whose profligacy destroyed the world 300 years before our current era. So I'm guessing probably sometime in the early 21st century. Ouch, yeah. ouch. Um, so. They may also hold the key to Frey and the rebels' victory over her father. What I wondered, in the 15 or so years since you introduced the Rusties in Uglies, have you found yourself reimagining the, their sense of self or even their depravity um, that led to them, you know, basically ending their world. Well, 
I mean, canonically, what happens to our civilization in this series is that um, somebody, either a terrorist or somebody just trying to clean up an oil spill, invents a self-replicating virus that eats oil and basically gets rid of it. And so that's our, that is our weakest link of our societies that we are so dependent on oil, which is destructive and it's owned by, you know, it, it's, it's placed in the world in places that are unstable and are only going to get more unstable because they own oil. And so, so basically our rate limiting factor, our, our Achilles heel, is, gets, gets cut. And our society collapses, which is what leads to, a, you know, some sort of long period of chaos and then the world that I'm describing rising up. Um, so as far as reimagining the uglies or, or the rusty is us in the last 15 years, I, I mean, I think what really happened in the last 15 years and what made me want to go back to the uglies world is I realized that stability is is not something you can ever take for granted. Mm. Places that were that seemed like very productive and stable democracies have proven themselves to be less so. Um, economic experiment experiments that were working really pretty well, like the European Union, are now are now not. Mm. And so, so that made me want to go back and write about not necessarily our world, but about this future world, with the notion that things would go wrong mm. and that uh, that the stability that was represented by that period where everybody had got the operation and looked the same way and thought the same way that things would become really chaotic after um, you know and, and it was it was really the last 15 years since I wrote those books that made me realize oh yeah there will be there will be no stability once the once my revolutionaries take over there will just be more and more interesting chaos to talk about okay so I think now is an important time to tell the listener that there is 400 pages of interesting chaos that we're not going to say too much more about because we don't want to spoil. I want to finish maybe on, um, well, on a, on a motif that I noticed that you return to several times in Shatter City. It's small, but to me it felt significant. So we, we've mentioned before that Frey, a part of Frey's journey in Shatter City is, is accumulating allies and discovering herself through the people that she meets. One of her allies has a father who is an artist, a novelist. Now, Frey doesn't really understand what a novel is. Right. Yeah, they don't, they don't have them in Shreve. For me, it's hard to imagine a world without novels. Um, and to me, they, they, they sort of occupy this essential role in the ways that we tell our stories and define ourselves, our self-image. It's a recursive process, I find, through reading. Um, what do you think, though? What does it mean for a society to not have access to this sort of storytelling? And how do they conceive of themselves? How do they confront social issues in the ways that we can through, say, a novelistic form? One reason I think novels don't exist in Shreve is that nobody has any privacy. Hmm. The idea that you would sit for eight hours a day for a year and a half or two years pouring your guts onto the page hmm. when everything you do is being recorded anyway is kind of a, like the novel is already happening. You're already performing the novel. Yeah. And so, so I, I, I liked the idea that, that, the, that the form wouldn't exist and wouldn't make sense to someone who lived in a total surveillance state like that. Um, I mean, I'm interested in the fact that in our world, despite the fact that teens have more, you know, more access to more kinds of media than they ever had before, they can not only watch movies all the time, they can watch movies from any era. Mm. You have teenagers who like 50s movies and, you know, and, and silent films and... And, and it's all there. And yet, 
novels are probably one of the most biggest and sorry and yet novels are one of the largest cultural objects of our era like the, the since the Harry Potter books teenagers have been incredibly invested in the form of the novel so i i just wanted to create a world in which that was contingent and that didn't seem automatic so uh, that allows people to think about the fact that teenagers you know they made the novel the big form it is right now. Mm. They are part of that process, just like they've always been a, a part of the process of making rock and roll what it was, or rap music. Teenagers are the, the cultural vanguard. So I just wanted to, um, you know, sort of give them a little bit of a shout out as, you know, saying the novels happen because of you. They're not automatic. They just, mm. they won't always be here necessarily. They haven't always been here. They only got invented about a thousand years ago. It, if they're big now, it's because... Somebody loves them. So, could Frey be Frey if, in her in her solitude in her early life, she'd had novels to read? It feels to me like she couldn't. Oh no, because she would have had another set of point of views. Mm-hmm. I would say that novels are machines for becoming other people. Mm-hmm. They're a way to like when you read a book, you become that person. You see through their point of view. You see what they see, but you also believe what they believe. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've had dreams as a person, you know, whose novel I was reading or as a character whose novel I was reading. And Frey had never had the opportunity to be another person except her own sister. That's Mm. the only POV she was ever allowed to consume. That's the only empathy she was ever allowed to have. Whereas if she'd grown with novels, she would have had hundreds or thousands of people that she could have been. I am speaking with Scott Westerfeld. We are discussing Shatter City. It is the second novel uh, in Imposters, which is going to be is it a trilogy or four or four tr- quadrilogy. Four. Oh, quite fantastic! Um, it is so exciting to have you here, Scott. Thank you so much for for diving deep into this book because it it gave me so many feels, gave, gave me so many thoughts, um, and it was really it was really great to get into them. Uh, so, Scott Westerfeld, the the latest is Shatter City. Although I will say. Uh, coming as someone who didn't read Imposters first, get out and check out Imposters if you haven't yet, and then get to Shatter City. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. That's it for this great conversation with Scott Westerfeld. Scott's new novel is Shatter City, and it's out now through Alan and Unwin. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing, and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. You can also click subscribe in your podcast app. It means there will be a new great conversation from Final Draft every week. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations. And until then, happy reading.